Well, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Mark chapter 16. Mark chapter 16. And as you find that text, I would just uh, um, like you to think about what's going on in the world today. You know, I don't like reading the newspaper and I don't like looking at the major news websites because it depresses me. I mean, doesn't it depress you when you read that stuff? It's just, it's enough to, you know, give you an, a panic attack. Um, you know, every once in a while I might download a, a week of Al Mohler's radio programs to kind of get the news filtered through a Christian worldview. But the rest of the time, I just, I just don't even like to go there because I know what it's going to say. Like yesterday, I just got on the internet and I just looked at some of the major news sites and this is what I discovered as the top news stories Sunday school teacher arrested in girl's death woman and two kids slain in New Orleans suburb pirate ship holding captive hostage nears Kenya gunman kills one wounds three at Dutch cafe car hits churchgoers after good friday service man charged with murder in pitcher's death suicide bomber kills nine in iraq woman leads cops in 100 mile per hour pursuit the news and you know that doesn't just that doesn't make me feel good it's like every news site should just have the total depravity of the world written on the headlines because really the world is falling apart if you if you just step back and you look at it, you'll see that the world is falling apart. I mean, I won't even get into just the economic things. That's that's scary enough. But we're all feeling that, too. The whole point is, is that the Bible predicted this. Paul said that in the latter days, right before Jesus is coming, things would proceed from bad to worse. Men would be both deceiving and being deceived. And so here we are. Our country is, in many respects, like the days of Noah, when every intent of man's heart was only evil continuously, or as in the days of Sodom and Gomorrah, where gross immorality just reigns in our country. Not only is it accepted, it is defended. And those who have morals are condemned as being wicked and evil. And so now evil is spoken of as good and good as evil. Atheists, agnostics, evolutionists deny God's existence. Why? So they can sin with a clear conscience. That's why. They don't want to think of God, a holy God, governing everything because they're not living for him. And if they're not living for him, they're going to be judged. And if they're going to be judged, they're in trouble. So let's just deny God. Let's deny that the Bible is true. Let's say the miracles never happened in the Bible and the resurrection did not take place. That way we can go on sinning and lying and deceiving and living our selfish lifestyles and not have to worry about a sovereign creator who will judge the living and the dead. Let's say you're just talking to a friend one day and you're chatting and, you know, you kind of see him kind of favoring one foot a little bit. And you kind of look down and you notice the little blood's kind of leaking out of his shoe. And you say, hey, what's going on with your foot? Oh, that thing, that's nothing. Well, there's blood coming out of your shoe. 
Oh, yeah, he says, I stepped on a big rusty nail. It's in my foot somewhere, but that's, it's, it's all right. I, I got some Novocaine. I made it numb and it doesn't hurt. I mean, what would you say to a friend like that? What? It's still in there? Yeah, but it doesn't hurt. I've numbed it. It feels fine. I mean, it feels a little weird because it's numb, but it doesn't, it's not hurting me. I mean, if you love that friend, you'd grab him and say, pal, listen up. That nail's going to get infected. You're going to get tetanus or, or gangrene. You'll be dead within a month. The Bible says all men are sinners. The Bible says all men have a rusty nail in their foot. And if it isn't dealt with by the great physician of the souls, it'll kill him. Not only physically, but it will kill them for eternally and eternity in hell. You can numb yourself with drugs and immorality and entertainment and you can deny that God exists. But you know what? It doesn't change the truth. It doesn't change the truth. Even if you're Richard Dawkins and deny the existence of God and write a big fat book about how God doesn't exist. It doesn't change the truth. You go up to the rim of the Grand Canyon and look way down and just jump off. And on the way down, you can say, I'm not hitting. I'm not hitting. You know what? Your denial may make it easier on the way down, but you're still going down. And you're going to meet with a very abrupt end. I'm sure if your friend had a nail in his foot, you would compel them to go see a doctor to look at the facts to get a clue you would beg them reason with them so that they could be cured of something that is very curable if they would just take action well because men are sinners and we know this we know this for Several reasons. One, the Bible says we're all sinners. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Another way is, is we know ourselves. I mean, everybody knows that they don't live for God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength every moment of every day. We may, you know, be better than the average, you know, popular serial killer. But we're not as good as God. We're not perfectly holy and perfectly just. And we know that. Everyone's a sinner. And so not only do we have our own sins to contend with, we also have the sin of Adam. This makes things worse. Paul says that Adam, because we are his descendants, he kind of passed down his guilt to us. It is reckoned to us, imputed to us, charged to our account. It'd be be kind of like this. You know, you go to the bank and you decide to open up a checking account. And you tell the the teller, yeah, I want to open a checking account. And they say, well, fill out this paper. And so you're filling it out. And when you get it all filled out, they say, okay, here's your number. And by the way, you're $70 billion in the negative. You say, what? Oh, I forgot to tell you. The guy before you who had the same account left it with a serious deficit. And now you are in debt $70 billion. That's how it is when you're born into this world. You're born with the sin and guilt of Adam. And on top of that, we do our own sinning. 
We are guilty and no amount of denial will change the facts that we will be judged because of our sin if we don't get a cure. I know, right? Some of you are probably thinking right now, wait a second, Pastor Jack. Ho, 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 ho. I thought this was Resurrection Sunday. You know, it's supposed to be happy. You know, Jesus lived a perfect life, died on the cross for our sins. We get to go to heaven. We're getting there. It is good news that Jesus was born of a virgin, that he lived a perfect life, that he willingly offered himself up as a sacrifice to appease the wrath of a just God, to be a substitute for sinners. Oh, that is great and it's necessary, but it's not enough. There's one more thing that has to be tacked on and that is he is risen. He is risen indeed. You know, the resurrection isn't merely, you know, some extraneous fact that we get to tack on to the gospel. It is an essential component. You know, Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, he spends the longest chapter in the whole book of 1 Corinthians arguing for the resurrection. Because some men came in there and said, you're going to be a Christian, but you don't have to believe in the resurrection. Paul goes, whoa, whoa, not true. And he says this in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 16 through 19, for if the dead are not raised, even not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sin. And those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And if we have hope, In Christ, in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. Bad news if you reject the resurrection. You can call yourself a Christian, but you're not. You can say you're going to heaven, but you're not. If you don't have the resurrection, if you don't believe in the resurrection, you are still in your sins, you're on your way to hell, and you won't make it to heaven. That's what Paul makes definitively clear. If you've been coming to Calvary Bible Church for a while, you've probably heard me say on multiple occasions the difference between repentance and faith. The scriptures talk about it all the time. Sometimes you read in the Gospels, you know, repent. And that's all it said. Repent. And other times it's believe. And other times it's repent and believe. They say, well, what's that? Well, repentance is when you turn from your sin. You let go of whatever you're living for. And faith, believing, is to lay hold of, receive, trust in Christ. So you turn from your idol, whatever that is, and then you lay hold of Christ. So sometimes the scriptures just say, repent, turn from your sin. Other times, receive or believe in Christ. And other times, turn from and believe. All three are used. But there's also this idea of the resurrection. You remember at the beginning of... First Corinthians 15, before Paul starts that long discussion on the resurrection, remember how he begins? It's very interesting. Paul is talking to the Corinthian believers, and he wants to remind them of how they got saved from the wrath of God to come. How they got into heaven, how they got their foot in the door. What got them from being a sinner under judgment, from being a child of God destined for heaven. And this is what he tells them. Now I may known to you, brethren, the gospel, and gospel just means good news, which I preach to you. So Paul came and he preached a message to them. 
He says, which you also received and which also you stand by which also you are saved. So the gospel is a message that if proclaimed to someone else, if they believe and receive this message, they are saved, delivered from the wrath of God, from hell, from the judgment to come. And then he goes on to tell us exactly what that is. He says in verse three, for I delivered to you as of first importance, what I also received first, that Christ died for our sins. According to the scriptures, he hung on a cross. He bore the wrath of God in our place as a substitute. Secondly, and that he was buried. He was stuck in the tomb. And thirdly, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. Paul says that is in a nutshell, the gospel, but notice the resurrections in there, the resurrections in there. And then he goes on to write the longest chapter in the book of first Corinthians devoted to the subject of the resurrection and its truthfulness. Right after Jesus ascended to heaven, right before Pentecost and the birth of the church, Do you remember when uh, Judas had betrayed Christ? And so there was, you know, the 12 apostles were 11. And so Peter gathers them together. This is right after Jesus, you know, ascended into heaven and they're all watching and the angel appears and says, why do you stand looking up into heaven? That's such a funny statement. It's like, well, we're not usually used to people rising up into the clouds. It's not, you know, it's scary to see somebody go up there. So that's why we're gawking. The angel's going, oh, yeah, that's right. I I guess it's pretty easy for me. I, I do that all the time. But for you, I guess it's a new thing. Okay. Right after that, Peter says, well, we got to pick somebody because the scriptures say that we need to appoint somebody else to Judas's office. And do you remember how Peter described the role of this person, the role of an apostle. This is how he described it in Acts one twenty one. One of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. That is how the apostle Peter described the job of an apostle to be a witness of Jesus's resurrection. And then what happens? Well, in chapter two, Pentecost, the church is born, the Holy Spirit is given, and what happens in Peter's first sermon? He says that David looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses, and then he does exactly what he says is the job of an apostle in chapter 1. Not only that, right after that, and by the way, Only 3,000 people came to Christ after he told them about the resurrection. They believed in the resurrection and they were saved. 3,000 Jews, over 3,000. Then, of course, John and Peter are up on the Temple Mount and they are causing huge problems. Why? Because they're preaching the resurrection of Jesus. And this is the one that the religious leaders who were in charge of the Temple Mount, it's kind of their turf, They are the ones who conspired together to get rid of Jesus and to make make sure that Jesus's body was guarded so that there would be no deception about his rising from the dead. Now you've got Peter and John standing in the temple mount boldly proclaiming Jesus's resurrection. 
And they're a little bit upset. It says they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And so they're arrested. And Luke goes on to say, and with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And abundant grace was upon all them, all of them. This was not unique to Peter either. I mean, you can go. You know, the second half of Acts talks about Paul and his ministry. In Acts chapter 17, verse 18, Paul's standing before the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. Now, you know, probably one of the hardest groups to witness to are educated people. These guys were you know, think tank type guys. Now, these guys were the, the, the mental, you know, philosophers and, and idea crunchers of the day. And so what does Paul do? Does he go to him and go, you know, I, I've got something to tell you. It's, it, it may sound a little strange to you. I, I, it's probably way out there. Um, but I just want you to know that Jesus rose from the dead. That's not what he does. He stands up in front of him and says, I wanted you to know something. Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, died and rose again. There's none of this like cowering. Then he's standing in the Areopagus, which is the council of the the heads of all the mental giants. It's kind of like, you know, where all the, the great thinkers of the great universities gather together to philosophize and talk about the issues of the day. This is intimidating stuff. And so what happens? Paul preaches the resurrection to them. And even though um, they scoff at him, even though they make fun of him, some believe. And then later on in Acts, in Acts chapter 24, verses 15 and 21, Paul is standing before Felix. And what does he preach? The resurrection. The resurrection, you're thinking, man, people don't rise from the dead. Paul, don't just go in there and tell them that Jesus rose from the dead. You'll scare away your converts. No, it's the only way to get them saved. They have to believe in the resurrection. If they don't believe in the resurrection, you can't go to heaven. So the first thing he does is go, here's something. If you can buy this, you get in. Resurrection. Later in Acts chapter 26, verse 23, Paul stood before Festus and King Agrippa, and he boldly proclaimed the resurrection. Imagine that. And Festus says in a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning has driven you mad. And then listen to what Paul says to Festus. I am not Out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I utter words of sober truth for the king knows about these matters. And I speak to him also with confidence, since I am persuaded that none of these things escape his notice for this has not been done in a corner End quote. Paul says, listen, I'm not mad. You're mad is what he was saying for not believing. And he says, King Agrippa, you know I'm telling the truth. I mean, Jesus didn't say, okay, that's what's going to happen. I'm going to raise from the dead and no one's going to know about it. No, it was the message. 
The women saw it. The apostles saw it. The angels declared it. They saw Jesus. More than 500 other of the brethren had Christ appear to them. It was no secret. Paul says he's not done in a corner. What's amazing is the Jewish historian Josephus. Now, Josephus wasn't a believer. He wasn't a Christian. He was just kind of a run-of-the-mill Jew. He wasn't even a Jewish leader. Wrote this in his Antiquities. He's living at that time, book 18, chapter 3, section 63. He says, quote, Now there was about this time Jesus a wise man, if it be lawful to call him a man, for he was a doer of wonderful works, a teacher of such men as received the truth with pleasure. He drew over to him both many of the Jews and many of the Gentiles. He was the Christ. And when Pilate, at the suggestion of the principal men among us, had condemned him to the cross those that loved him at first did not forsake him for he appeared to them alive again the third day some people say well that was added a lot later way after josephus's time and somebody put that in listen eusebius the early church father before 300 a.d quotes it josephus knew about it king agrippa knew about it i mean come on they had the roman soldiers were there they knew about it when the rock was the stone was rolled away and the angel appeared they fainted they got up they went back and said what do we do he's risen from the dead we're gonna pay you just keep quiet and tell everybody the disciples snuck the body away i mean this wasn't some sort of like you know hyper secret the apostles were standing on the mount proclaiming it they were proclaiming they were filling the world with their teaching agrippa knew and paul proclaimed and this is what christians do they proclaim the truth it is a fact that jesus rose from the dead you either believe it or you reject it but if you reject it it doesn't make it not true It's true whether men say it's true or not, because God says it's true, because it was verified by many witnesses, and all of history hangs on this truth. So that's introduction. Last week, we looked at the Passion Week of Christ. We started with his triumphal entry. We followed the week, his teaching, the events, and we ended with Jesus, cold, dead, stiff, And thoroughly wrapped up in a lot of linen wraps and a lot of spices. Remember, Joseph and Nicodemus took care of his body and prepared it for burial. And Nicodemus, it says, brought over a hundred pounds of spices. That's over, you know, half of Jesus's body weight. This is a kingly amount of spices. And you just need to know that back then what they do is they would make like a paste of these spices, put some wraps, put some paste, wraps, paste. I mean, Jesus probably was in cased you know in two inches of spices and wraps we're talking a serious mummy he was thoroughly wrapped up he was very spicy (laughs) they had just dumped a hundred pounds of spice that's a lot of spice when you think about it you know think of a couple 50 pound sacks you know they were talking a lot of spice so if you're going to put all that on somebody man you gotta it's going to be thick We're talking major thickness here. Jesus had a very kingly burial. But you also remember that 
Though all these spices were used on him, the Sabbath, he died about three in the afternoon and they got the body and they prepared it just before it got dark and the Sabbath started and the Jews can't work on the Sabbath. It was, uh, you know, the, the Passover celebration and the feast of um, the unleavened bread was happening. And so everybody had to go. They couldn't work anymore. So they left Jesus in the tomb. Well, the next day on Saturday, remember that the Jewish leaders then came and said, you know, we got an issue. Because Jesus said before his death that he was going to rise again after three days. So let's just be careful. Because, you know, we don't want the disciples going, stealing his body and going, oh, Jesus rose from the dead. And then the last deception will be worse than the first. Can we just, you know, seal the tomb and guard it? Pilate says, okay. So they get the Roman guard, they put the seal of Rome on it, which is if you touch this seal, you're in huge trouble. You got a bunch of soldiers who upon pain of death or guarding a dead man, which is kind of interesting. They probably thought, you know, we've never had to guard anybody who was dead before. But in this instance, they did. If they fell asleep, it was execution. No Roman soldier could. So it's not like they're napping. They're guarding a dead man. Sealed in a tomb with the seal of Rome on top of that to make sure he doesn't get out. All right. That's what happens on the Sabbath. And when we come to Mark 16, it's now Sunday morning. And so if you aren't at Mark 16, verse 1, please turn there. And I just want to make three observations, draw out three important lessons you can learn from the resurrection account here in Mark so that you don't live in this world without hope. So that you can have hope in the face of certain coming judgment and not have to fear. And the first is remember the scriptures. Look at Mark 16.1. It says, well, now when the Sabbath was over, so it's, it's Sunday. The Jews now could resume their work because it's Saturday. You got three women here, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome. All three of these women were very faithful women. All of these three women, we learn, um, were present at Jesus's death. They were standing around the foot of the cross and watched Jesus die. When all the men ran away, the women stayed. Go figure. Look at the end of verse 1. They brought spices so that they might come to anoint him. So... They knew that Joseph and Nicodemus had prepared Jesus' body, but they probably brought some fragrant oils and they were just going to anoint Jesus' body with it. And this was, you know, a common practice. The reason for the spices, if you're wondering, why all the spices? And why the fragrant oils? Because bodies stink when they decay. Um, If you've ever been to a funeral, you know, they bring them out of the refrigerator right before the funeral. And if they don't, They get nasty real quick. And so it was just kind of to mask the stink in the tomb. Now, you need to know a little bit about Jewish burial stuff because it's pretty fascinating. It's a little different than ours. You know, we get somebody, we either burn them up or we stick them in a box and then we 
put them in a box in a concrete vault and then we cover them up with dirt and you know there's all these regulations or whatever back then they had a whole different system they would usually carve a tomb out of solid rock and they would first carve the entrance and the entrance would be small maybe two to three feet tall so we're talking about a short little tunnel somebody like me would have a very difficult i'd have like a crawl on my hands and knees to get in there we're talking about a short little entryway a little tunnel that would leave and lead into this burial chamber that was maybe about eight feet by eight feet and it was just a room and it would be taller so you could stand up in there at least short people could and um there would be niches holes shelves cut in the rock in the walls and then there would be one big kind of bench where you could lay a person's body and this is how it worked you know when somebody died you take that person wash them up get spices get linen wraps you'd wrap them up and make your classic mummy you'd lay them there on the bench you'd do this as quick as you could because they didn't have any you know refrigerators and embalming fluid or you, you just put them there and then you got out of the tomb and then you took a big stone so no one would get in front of get in there and get defiled because dead bodies were unclean and you'd roll it over there just to keep people out and then you leave them there for about a year. During that time, the body would decay and dry out. About a year later, you'd come back. You'd then roll the stone away and you'd go in there. Somebody would go in there, unwrap the body, and then you'd have this dried out mummy. You then, and this would be an interesting task, you'd break up the mummy. And you'd stick it into a box that was about three feet long, about 15 inches deep and 15 inches high. It was called, it was called an ossuary box. You then put the bones of the person in the box. Then you put the lid on the box and maybe it'd have their name on it, you know, Uncle Bob. And then you would take the ossuary box and then you would stick it into the shelf and now you'd have a box. Well, your whole family could then be buried in this tomb because you'd keep adding the different boxes of bones of the different people in your family. So, you know, after a long time, you might have, you know, several generations of people in there that have died and been put. So that's what's going on here. So the women wanted to just pay their last respects. And uh, though it was a little bit risky, it, 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 it had only been probably about you know, 40 hours since Jesus was in there, a little bit of Friday, all day Saturday, and about half of Sunday. Remember, Sunday started um, on Saturday, our Saturday evening. And so Jesus hadn't been in there, and they thought, well, let's just go and we'll anoint him, we'll pay our respects to him, so uh, put a little anointing oil on there because they're they're crushed and they're broken. Look at verse 2. It says when they came, it says it was very early on the first day of the week, and they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. Some say, aha! Do you see that? And a lot of times in your English translations, you won't see that. But this little phrase, very early, means between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m., before sunrise. But the problem is, is the text says, when the sun has risen. Well, that's like saying before 6 and after 6. That doesn't work. And some people have said, obviously, this was written by some person way later, and they concocted the story, put it in here, so obviously it's not true. Well, listen, the women didn't live at the tomb. They were probably staying in Bethany or some other place in Jerusalem. And so what happened? They got up very early before the sun rose. And then they walked. They didn't take the tram or the train or drive a car. They walked. And by the time they got to the tomb, the sun had risen. Okay, solve that one. 
And when they approached the tomb, look at verse 3, they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? Uh, we learn from another account that one of the women, Mary Magdalene, was there, saw the stone rolled there. So she knew the stone was there. She knew that it was huge. Mark describes it, as we'll get down the text, as extremely large. So we're talking about a gigantic stone. What happened is they would create a stone and actually carve a big round disc, you know, maybe a foot thick, a big disc of solid stone. And they would actually carve a groove in the rock and they would roll it and the groove would be sloped so that left on its own, the stone would just roll and it would just keep the tomb sealed. The only way you could get in there is if you got some very brawny men with some pry bars and you pried it back and then put a wedge into there so it wouldn't seal up the tomb again. And so these women are coming and they're saying, so, so how are we going to get in? It's like, I don't know, man. When I was here, that, that stone was huge, but surely we'll find somebody else and they'll help us and we'll get inside. So that's what they're thinking. They're wondering how they're going to get into the tomb. Now, it's obvious at this point that the women are totally convinced Jesus's body is in the tomb. I mean, after all, they've gotten up early to come anoint the body. They've got the oil with them and they're concerned about getting into the tomb to anoint the body. I mean, obviously, and they didn't know about the soldiers. You say, well, why is that? Because the soldier thing happened on the Sabbath and they didn't do anything in the Sabbath. So they were at home waiting for the Sabbath to end. The Jewish leaders went to Pilate on the Sabbath and said, can we guard the tomb? So that's when they put the Roman soldiers there, the seal there, and the Romans were guarding. Well, then where were the soldiers? Well, this is what happened to him. Matthew 28 verses 2 through 4 describes what happened. This is right before these women arrived. We don't know. Either just earlier in the morning, probably. It doesn't give it. Uh, specific um, time. And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. And his appearance was like lightning and his clothing was white as snow and the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. In other words, they fainted from fear. All these hardened, you know, trained killers, man, they're, ah, they're dead. And then pretty soon they start waking up like scared puppies and they realize the body's gone i mean there's no reason to stay around what are they going to guard air so then that's when they go back and that's when they get paid off not to say anything so the soldiers have gone and it is here that we learn our first important lesson that these women failed to remember the words of jesus and the scriptures They failed to remember the words of Jesus in the scriptures. They're caught up in Jesus' arrest, the drama of the moment, his scourging, his crucifixion. They just can't bear to see him suffer. He dies, and they're just mourning. The whole situation has just eclipsed their thinking, and they have never stopped and said, But wait, what do the scriptures say? What did Jesus tell us? And because they don't stop... And ask themselves that question. They're in a lot of pain and anguish and grief and mourning. And how often do we act like these three women? I mean, think about it. Think about those times in your life where, you know, somebody cuts you off when you're driving down the road. It's your first thought. Now, what do the Bible say? Does that happen to you? It doesn't happen to me. You know, all of a sudden, 
rage comes up or something, you know? A lot of times we, our first reaction when trials happen is a bad one. And the, the discipline that Christians must develop is what does the Bible say? What does God want me to do? But these women and the apostles got so caught up in Jesus' betrayal, his arrest, his scourging, his trial, his crucifixion, his death, his burial, that they were all just mourning and they were all weeping and they all felt terrible. Do you remember in Genesis 22 when God said, Abraham, I want you to go kill your son. You remember that? Think about that. Think about how Abraham just did it. I mean, could you do that? It's like, wait a second, wait a second, wait a second, Lord. This is the promised child. This is the miracle child. This is the child born to Sarah and I in our old age. You want me to kill him? I thought you said it was through Isaac that my descendants and all the nations of the earth would be blessed. What do you mean? How could Abraham just, when he receives that command, how could he just act? You ever wonder about that? Well, the author of Hebrews tells us this is phenomenal. It started off with Abraham having a God-centered worldview. Abraham knew God and Abraham knew about God. God was all sovereign and all powerful and nothing was impossible for him. Remember when he and Sarah were wondering if he was actually going to have a child with Sarah in their old age that the angel of the Lord said what? Nothing will be impossible with God. And then what happened? They had the child, right? And so Abraham had learned this lesson. And the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews eleven nineteen that Abraham considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead. This is amazing. Abraham says, okay, God, you want me to kill Isaac? <laughs> um, but you've also told me It is through Isaac that all my descendants, as numerous as the sand of the seashore, are going to come. He's a teenager. He doesn't have any kids yet. So I guess you're going to have to raise him from the dead. That was his reasoning. I mean, you're all powerful. Nothing is impossible for you. I've learned that one. And so if you want me to kill Isaac, and Isaac's going to be the promised child, you must be planning on raising him from the dead. That was his reasoning. And Abraham arrived at the resurrection by sheer knowledge of God's all-powerful sovereign abilities. But these women, they knew about the resurrection. They knew about Psalm 1610, the psalm that I just talked about that Peter quoted that God would not allow the Messiah to undergo decay. Which means that, yes, he would die, but yes, he would have to be resurrected if he wouldn't undergo decay. Not only that, these three women lived with Jesus, followed Jesus during his ministry, and Jesus predicted that he was going to die and be raised again eight times that we know of recorded in the scriptures. Think about that. Very subtle things like, I want you to know, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. There be handed over to the religious leaders. They are going to crucify me and I will be buried and raised again on the third day. Subtle things like that. Over and over again. They were told that. 
And what's amazing is, is for some reason, they just couldn't accept it. They couldn't believe how Jesus was going to die. That They must have thought, this must be metaphorical. This must be symbolic of something. Surely he can't be dying. Surely he can't be resurrected. He's the Lord. He's the Messiah. He's the guy doing the miracles. He's the guy who's going to rule and reign for Jerusalem. Well, you know, it's, that just doesn't work with us. John tells us in John chapter 20, verse 9, for as yet they did not understand the scriptures that he must rise again from the dead. They just didn't understand. They just couldn't do it. They couldn't bring themselves to believe that Jesus had to die. That just didn't work with them. They failed to bring Jesus' words and the prophecies of Scripture to mind, and they suffered because of it. And you know what? We are just the same, aren't we? We are just the same, but worse, because we know more than they did. We have the entire Bible, the entire New Testament. We have the Holy Spirit, if you're a believer, dwelling in you. But sometimes we have our own little self-sufficiency. We get caught up in our own thing. We turn to ourselves. We get caught up in our distracted by our circumstances. And then we don't stop and say, what does God say? What does God say about this? What is God's will concerning this? I mean, think of how different things would have been if Peter or John, let's say, one of the leaders among the 12, stopped, thought about the scriptures, and after Jesus was crucified and died you know john stands up and goes this is going to be so great guys jesus told us eight different times after three days he was going to rise again that means sunday he's coming up on sunday and you know what that sabbath instead of laying around moping and crying that jesus died they'd be like it'd be like christmas eve they'd all be waiting for christmas morning and they all probably would have went and 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 kind of got near the guards and said you know we don't know. They'd probably go there, you know, Saturday night, which is the beginning of Sunday, because they wouldn't know when Jesus was going to rise on Sunday, just that he would in that 24-hour period. And they'd probably kind of go, you know, kind of like groupies and, you know, um, soldiers, you know, we just want you to know, we're not here to bother you. You know, we, um, we're not here to do anything. We, we're just, we just kind of want to be near when it happens. When what happens? Uh, Jesus is going to rise from the dead. And... Um, he is God, so he's got major power, so you probably don't want to get too close to the tomb. <laughs> and then they all would have sat there, and they all would have witnessed the angel and the sto- stone being rolled away, and they would have had incredible joy. But they didn't remember the scriptures, and they didn't remember Jesus' words, and it caused them grief. So the lesson here to learn is constantly go to the word of God. Look at what it says. Believe in the words of Jesus and act upon them. Secondly, rejoice when the word of God is fulfilled. Look at verse four. Looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, although it was extremely large. I like this. Extremely large. This thing, man, was a monolith. This was gigantic. This was no three-woman stone. And we were talking probably several tons of rock in the form of a big disc stuck in a sloped groove guarding the entrance of the tomb, and it was rolled out of the way. Though it was extremely large. So now the problem's solved. We don't have to find somebody to roll away the stone. It's already rolled away, but, but, but why? 
Look at verse 5. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting at the right wearing a white robe and they were amazed. Now picture this in your mind. You, You come to the tomb. You're one of the women. You see this little entrance. It's kind of dark in there. You think, come on with that. The stone's gone. And so you kind of hunker down like this, and maybe you're even on your hands and knees, and you're crawling in one after another. You're going into this tomb. And what do you expect to find in there? A body. You you don't expect anybody in the tomb. I mean, who hangs around a tomb? And it's kind of creepy anyways, you know? I mean, the dead person's in there. And you're just going to go in there, do some oil. Hopefully your eyes are going to adjust when, you know, after you're in there a while and a little bit of light coming into that entrance is going to illuminate the, the inner chamber and your eyes will adjust. But when you get in there, there's an angel in there. That's who this young man is. An angel. And he had a, a white robe, which is white is the official heavenly color, by the way. Um, I just wonder, is it always going to be white? Do we get any other colors when we get to heaven? There's no plaid, I don't think, certainly, or paisley. But everybody's wearing white, it seems like, in heaven. And Jesus uh, is gone. Luke tells us that, that this young man, this angel, was dazzling in appearance. He's glowing like a light bulb. He's like this fluorescent bulb that's turned on. He's just, he's glowing. I mean, imagine you're outside and you think you're going into a dark cave. And when you get in there and you stand up, wham, lights. That would be scary. Then ASB translates it, they were amazed. That is a bad translation. The Greek word means to literally be terrified or struck with fear or terror. Ah, Just like you would be if you went in there crawling on your knees expecting kind of a cold, dark cave and you find some luminescent man in there. It'd be scary. I talk to people sometimes who say, oh yeah, I've seen an angel before. I say, really? Oh yeah, you know, I was shaven and... You know, I was driving, I was this, I was that. Yeah, I, I, I saw an angel. Really? And then what happened? I mean, after you picked yourself up off the floor. Oh, I, I didn't do that. Didn't see an angel. The first words that angels always say to everybody when they appear is, do not be afraid. Why? They're scary, man. They're scary. Major scary. They're they're of a different world. They're alien to our world, to our realm of existence, the physical realm. We don't we don't see angels, and so when you do see angels, it is scary. So every single time they say, "Do not be terrified," and that's exactly what this angel says. Do not be amazed. Same word, terrified, struck with fear. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who has been crucified. He has risen. And it's not here. Behold, here's the place where they laid him. And you know, Mark doesn't give us a lot of detail, but John tells us in John chapter 20, verses 3 through 7, that all the linen wrappings were there. And not only that, but that the faith, face cloth, that's the piece they put over Jesus' face before they mummied him up. That face cloth was actually rolled up and laid aside neatly. Now, you just got to stop and think about this. Who did that? Who did that? I mean, think about the Jew, Jewish leader story. 
Here the Roman guard is up there. They've got their shields and their swords and their dagger and their armor. And upon pain of death, they're guarding the tomb. The apostles stealthy sneak by. Very carefully, they pry off the seal so no one hears. And while the guards are just pointing in the other direction, they roll the stone away as quiet as a mountain. Maybe they put some down, down. Who knows? They move it away. They put a rock underneath there. The guards don't even notice. They're just like three or four feet right behind them. Eleven of them. And so they slink into the tomb. And then they see Jesus' body. And what do they do? Let's spend an hour and unwrap it. That just doesn't make sense. Who would do that? No one would do that. Yet that's what John tells us happened. So the question is, who unwrapped him? Well, I was thinking about this. I thought, well, there's some possibilities. You know, maybe, you know, Jesus kind of did the Hercules thing. Was resurrected and kind of broke loose from all his spices and wraps. Maybe he kind of, you know, just kind of translated out of the cocoon of all those spices and wraps. And then he himself just unwrapped the cocoon so everybody could see that there was nothing in it and saw the face cloth and kind of folded it up and rolled it up and laid it aside. Or maybe the angel said, you know what? He's going to be resurrecting pretty soon. Let's get him unwrapped. They unwrapped him, rolled up the face cloth and Jesus was there and he came to life. And that was it. You know what? We get to heaven. We're going to find out. I'm going to ask. We can all ask. I don't know. But it's pretty fascinating to think about. The wrappings were there. He was unwrapped by somebody. Jesus did it or the angels did it. But some, one of those two people did it. Now, there's some other lessons that we need to find here. One particular that I want to show you. And that is this. That we need to rejoice when God's word is fulfilled. You know, these women, okay, we'll just excuse them and say, okay, they were traumatized. They were distracted. It was brutal to see Jesus killed. I'm sure it was grieving. Even if they believed in the resurrection implicitly, it was still hard to see Jesus die, be crucified and buried. But Jesus did tell them. This wildly amazing thing, at least eight times that we know of, that he was going to be resurrected. It's kind of a hard thing to forget. And you know, no one had ever predicted their death before. And by whom they would die and the way they would die and then their own self-resurrection after three days. It's not some, you know, thing you you forget. You know, if somebody tells you eight times over the course of several months or whatever. But even when God sends the angel and verbally declares to them Jesus's resurrection, the women fail to rejoice. Now, we need to be gracious to these women. You know, Jesus had suffered. They loved him deeply. It was traumatizing. We'll just say that, you know, we'll just give him a total pass. But I think we need to just kind of look at their failure and receive the rebuke to our own souls. When we fail to give Jesus praise and to glorify him and to worship him and to rejoice when he fulfills his word. 
know, the resurrection is so amazing. And we need to have a hearty response. He is risen. He is risen indeed. A little cower in front of people. You know, so many times, you know, we get out there, some college professor with a bunch of string of PhDs as their postal diggers. Tries to say, oh, yeah, the resurrection never happened. We need to look that person. Man, I pity your poor, poor, deceived soul. That is such a foolish statement. He has risen. He has risen indeed. It's none of this cowering. And we need to rejoice in this as Christians. We need to praise God that he's risen. And not be like these women who we learn in verse 8 that they were terrified and ran away. I mean, yeah, eventually they got their act together, but they didn't respond correctly. They had the scriptures. They had Jesus' own testimony. They had the verbiage of the glowing man. They wouldn't rejoice. And listen, the resurrection is important. The resurrection proves that Jesus had not sinned. That's why death had no power over him. The resurrection proves that God accepted Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf as his substitute. The resurrection proves that Jesus is a living Savior, not a dead one. The resurrection proves that he is a ruling savior. The resurrection proves that Jesus is able to save others from death. The resurrection proves that he is able to resurrect others as he resurrected himself. And the resurrection gives us plenty of reason to rejoice and we need to rejoice. That's why we sing up from the grave. He arose with a mighty triumph over his foes. He arose forever from the dark domain and lives forever with the saints to reign. He arose. He arose. There you go. That's the praise God part. Christ arose. Let the world deny God and the truth of the Bible and the resurrection, but let Christians rejoice over it. Let's not all go all out on Halloween and Christmas and Thanksgiving and then just throw a couple crumbs to Easter. Man, Easter's the big day for Christians. The resurrection Sunday is when it happens. That's when Christ arose. Hallelujah, Christ arose. Because it was then he secured for us our salvation by proof being raised from the dead. So let's not run away in fear like the three women in our text, but rejoice that God has fulfilled what he promised. And third, run and tell others. Look at verse 7. But go, he says, Tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him again, just as he told you. Here we have a command, go, and another infallible promise, you're going to see him again. You know, I love this right here. It's so good. I just, I'm just, I'm just, it just begs me to preach a whole sermon on this, but just honorable mention. The angel receiving instructions from the Lord says, go tell the disciples And Peter. Peter's the one who after he had said twice, I will never deny you. I will lay down my life for you. Then denied him three times to save his skin. And wept like a baby. Peter had issues. Peter was proud. He was hard-headed. He was stubborn. He was opinionated. And God knew that he needed to be humbled. And so God knows how to humble us. And some of you are going, no kidding. No kidding. He's working on me, man. And it hurts. God uses big sticks. 
And so when he says, listen, and this is what's interesting about it. Not only is that word end Peter an encouragement to Peter, but it's also another whop to humble him. Why? Because if you go back in Mark to chapter 14, it, when, when the angel says, go to Galilee like he told you, well, that's a reference to Mark 14, 28. And it is right after that that Peter says, I will never deny you. I will lay down my life for you and keeps on insisting he wouldn't deny him. So when Peter hears those words from the women, it's like he's risen. Yes. And he wants us to tell you to go meet him in Galilee, just like he said before you denied him. Though you said you wouldn't. Oh, you know, we are all proud to very varying degrees, but we're all proud sinners. And I think we can all relate to Peter because we've all just kind of made little pride, proud statements and assertions and trusted in our own will and our own might and been stubborn and been obstinate and been whatever, just like Peter. But you know what? God hadn't been, God hadn't fixed Peter yet. He was just getting started on him. God wanted to use Peter to help build his church. But I'm telling you, Peter was far from humble yet. Wounded? Yes. Humble to a degree? Yes. Ready for ministry? No. No. Do you remember what happened? They go to Galilee, just like Jesus told them, just like the angel told them, Jesus told them. And they go there and they're supposed to wait for what? For Jesus to appear. Peter gets impatient. His pride takes over. He thinks he knows better than the angel. He knows better than Jesus. So he says, all right, I've had enough. Let's go fishing. Who's with me? And since he's the leader of the 12, he gets six of the other apostles to go fishing with him and disobey the Lord. So they go out. They're fish all night. They don't catch anything all night. They're coming back into the shore. And as they're coming back into the shore, they look on the shore and there's the guy, a guy there on the shore and he's got a fire going. He's cooking some fish. And the guy says, hey, why don't you throw over your nets one more time? See what you get. And they think, all right. And they do. And they catch a great quantity of fish. And the moment that happens, Peter gets a clue. Oh, this must have been painful for him. Because three years previous, when Jesus said, follow me, Peter said, okay, and followed him for a couple days. And then what did he do? He went back to fishing. And then what did Jesus do? They didn't catch anything all night. So he appears on the shore and he says, what? Cast over your nets. And when they do... And close a great quantity of fish. And then Peter is so broken. He says, Lord, okay. And he follows Jesus for three years. Now, what has Peter done? The same thing. So what does Jesus do? The same miracle. Ow. And Peter then, as soon as he sees the fish, goes, oh, oh, deja vu. This is what happened. And so he leaps into the sea. He then swims to shore and he probably like, you know, a puppy with his ears back, like, hi, Lord. 
it's me again. Second time. And pretty soon all the apostles are there and they're all surrounding Jesus. And Jesus has his fire and he's cooking some fish and some rocks. And in front of all the others, he says, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these fishies? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Now, what's interesting is Jesus uses the term, do you love me unconditionally more than these fish? And Peter says, Lord, you know, I like you a lot. He, he can't say I love you. Look at this. I mean, he just disobeyed him. Right. They said to him, tend my lambs. And he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Double ouch. I mean, everybody's watching going, yeah, Peter. And then he said, Lord, you know that I, and he uses the, I like you a lot term again. And then Jesus says to him, then shepherd my sheep. And he said to him a third time while all the apostles are watching. Simon, son of John. And then he uses Peter's word. Do you even like me a lot? And you can imagine how painful that was. And the text says Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you even like me a lot? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I like you a lot. And Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. And from that moment on, Peter told other people about Jesus. He died telling people about Jesus. You know, I am sure there are some of you here this morning who have never placed your faith in Jesus Christ under salvation. You may intellectually believe that, yes, Jesus is there. And you may even say, yeah, I guess I believe in the resurrection. But you haven't really believed unto salvation you just kind of throw around those intellectual ideas but you haven't trusted in christ paul says if you confess with your mouth jesus is lord and you believe in your heart that god raised him from the dead then you will be saved have you done that if not you need to do that and for the rest of us who know Christ, we need to go tell it on the mountains, over the hills, and everywhere, not only that Jesus Christ is born, but he lived a perfect life, was buried, and he rose again on the third day. For he is risen, and all God's people say, he is risen indeed. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your great truth, your great encouraging words that remind us by example, by instruction, that we need to be men and women who remember your word and the words of Jesus, who rejoice when they are fulfilled, who go out and proclaim to others that we serve a risen Savior. Father, help us to do that for your glory. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.